0: Well, church, we're in Matthew chapter 11 as we uh, go through this responses to Christ. Uh, and today we're going to be in Matthew eleven seven 7 through 13 regarding the uh, response of John the Baptist and what Jesus says about John the Baptist. So here the scripture from Matthew 11, starting in verse 7 should be in your worship guide. As they went away. John's disciples. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist... Until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Well, this morning, my desire is to exhort you to be people of consistent, Christ-honoring, living, fortitude, courage as we examine John the Baptist and his response and two truths that flow from this text regarding endurance. If you study classic literature and thought, there there are four cardinal virtues and there are three theological virtues. The four cardinal virtues are, number one, uh, prudence, which means to think rightly, to think soberly, to think with a wise mind. Uh, Some people can know a lot, but they don't have applied wisdom. Uh, my, my father, who turns 94 today, uh, said many times as I was a young boy, uh, he doesn't have enough sense to come in out of the rain, which is another way of saying he's not very wise in the way he lives life of prudence. Another cardinal virtue, the second of the four, is temperance. And in temperance, if you've studied American Literature has placed the 18th Amendment that, that temperance has come to mean in many minds abstaining from alcohol, but classically temperance meant to, to keep your your passions under control, to not be conquered by a passion, but, but to live a life that is, we would say, in subject to the lordship of Christ. More about that next week, but but temperance. And, and the third is justice. And justice means more than the court of law. It means to pursue fairness and an equitable spirit among people. Micah 6, 8 in the Old Testament, Micah talks about the fact that people were flooding the Lord with their sacrifices. And Micah says, really, this is what the Lord requires of you, but to, to do justly. To do justice, which means to be fair and equitable and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your god that's what god requires of you but justice and then the fourth is fortitude which means courage that causes you to stick to the task at hand it causes you to go forward even in the face of persecution or danger and that's what i see in the life of john the baptist just a life of fortitude and as i was thinking about that i was thinking about first timothy 6 where where Paul is writing to this young preacher, and he says in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. But then as you look at the context, I think he tells us how to fight the good fight of the faith. Verse 11, he says, but you, O man of God, flee from these things. You flee from dissensions. Flee from disobedience. Flee from these things and pursue, secondly, godliness Righteousness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So I look at this and I say, how do you fight the good fight of faith? You look at John the Baptist in his life. You you flee from certain things. You pursue certain things. And you do this in the context of many witnesses. John had his men who went to Jesus and he says, He's in prison, he's languishing for speaking the truth, for living in a godly fashion. He's in prison, and we're going to see in a few weeks, he literally lost his head because of an immoral woman and her conniving daughter. But but, but he's in prison, and, and as he's languishing in prison, he says, go and speak to Jesus and ask him, are you the one, or should we look for someone else? John the Baptist looked at Jesus, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah, and now he's filled with doubts. He said, are, are you the one? Or do we look for someone else? And as I have thought about this, I I've thought about our children and our grandchildren. and I, I know if you read speeches and if you read articles, it's very easy to read where people say, this is a very difficult age. And let me tell you something. This is by far and away the most difficult time I have ever seen uh, in trying to discern truth in the history of our country and my experience in it. Today we're being told up is down and down is up and in is out and out is in. Sometimes I just bury my head in my hands and I go, I can't believe this group is saying that and postulating this and pushing this. And I look at our children and I look at our grandchildren. And I thank God, have mercy upon them. And we will not raise the next generation. We will not love the next generations if we don't have the spirit of John the Baptist, which is a spirit of fortitude, which is a spirit of courage, which is a spirit of going forward. So please hear that. And that's why this is an important text to think about. And then Jesus is going to give us two truths in this text that are are to embolden us and encourage us. So once again, John John is in prison, and he's having doubts. He says, you know, is is he really Messiah? I'm looking for some type of aggressive kingdom. What's going on? And so his men go to him, and they say, we have a question. Are you Messiah, or should we look for someone else? And Jesus quotes the book of Isaiah. He says, tell John that, that the blind see, the lepers are healed, the lame walk, The dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And so, what he's saying is A plus B plus C plus D plus E equals Messiah. He's saying, I am Messiah. And as they turn and go away, there's probably some murmuring in the crowd. Something like this. Well, maybe John the Baptist isn't the guy we thought he was. If he's questioned who Christ is, maybe he's just not really with him. Maybe he's not the person he should be. Maybe, and Jesus gives a wonderful, I think, defense of John the Baptist. See, the Lord knew how fickle crowds were. Uh, one example, John chapter 4, excuse me, Luke chapter 4. This is an incredible scene. I've always thought, wow, this would be really An incredible place to to be observant and see what's going on. Jesus, early in his ministry, goes into the synagogue. He asks for the scroll of Isaiah. He reads a portion of it that goes like this. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who were oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant. He rolled it up, gave it back to the attendant, he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am Messiah. Amazing. Amazing. And it says, verse verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? How did this happen? And they were just flabbergasted by the grandeur and the spirit of Jesus. And, and, And then Christ launches into this discussion about Gentiles. And and really what he's saying is God loves Gentiles as well as the Jews. And God has a plan for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And you need to be very careful being ethnocentric in the way you look at the Scripture and the coming kingdom. And and the, the same crowd that just a few minutes before said, wow, we've never heard anything like this. Man, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down to the cliff and kill him. But passing through their midst, he went away. So so the same crowd that was boulderized by what he said is now traumatized because he talks about Gentiles. And they want to kill him. So Jesus knew how fickle crowds were. And so he stands up and he defends John the Baptist. And I love this. He asked them three questions. Number one, did you go out into the wilderness? See, they went out to John the Baptist. Did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed that's blown by the wind that just goes here and there, that just kind of goes like a tumbleweed? No, 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 no. You went out to the wilderness to see basically an oak, a man of courage and conviction, John the Baptist, a man of... Fortitude. Second question: Did you go out in the wilderness to see a man dressed in, dressed in soft clothing, which means you know, just he's living for luxury, he's living living for personal peace and affluence, he's living for the latest gadget, latest gadget, the latest thing to take away water, the latest hobby. He's just kind of living for nothing but himself. He's a nowhere man living in a nowhere land. So if that's who. You came to see people dressed in soft clothing. Then you go to the king's palace and you look at Herod Antipas, I think he's saying, look at Herod, who's living only for himself, only for comfort. He said, no, 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 no. You didn't come out to see a man dressed in soft colors who didn't care. You came out and you saw John the Baptist. And then he says this, did you, did you go out to see A prophet. And he quotes Isaiah 40. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me, Isaiah 40, verse 3. Did you go out to see a prophet? And he says, yes, he's more than a prophet. In fact, John the Baptist, Jesus Messiah declares, is the Elijah who was to come. He is the last prophet before the Messianic age. And it comes from Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There's going to be an ultimate messenger, the final prophet, the Elijah who was to come, and Jesus says, I'm telling you, that's John the Baptist. This is now kingdom come. Chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is kingdom come. This prophecy written 400 years before Christ has been fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And so what Jesus is saying is I am proclaiming to you there is an in-breaking of the kingdom. Messiah is now here. This is the pivotal moment of all history. The unbreaking of the kingdom. Now I thought about key moments in our lives. And I, I thought of some of the older people here, the greatest generation. I thought of, of this December the 7th, 1941. There are some people here that can tell you uh, I was a young child We were coming home from church on the East Coast. And a neighbor may have walked over and knocked on the door. They said, turn on the radio. Something horrible has happened in Hawaii. And so they turned on the radio and they heard there had been a a sneak attack at Pearl Harbor. And that's the USS Arizona. Almost 1,800 men killed in that. Um, a, A terrible thing. And they will remember sitting around their radios the next day on a Monday and hearing a man named Franklin Roosevelt, our president, saying December the 7th is a day that will live in infamy. And from that point forward, everybody's lives were changed in the United States. We entered World War II. We lost almost 400,000 men. And the whole nation was girded up for four years to fight a worldwide war. Never forget, December the 7th, 1941, When I was a child, two things that I remember very well. I was in the fourth grade, November the 22nd, 1963, when John Kennedy and his wife Jackie flew to Dallas, Texas, and they got into an open limousine, and they rode through the streets of Dallas, and Lee Harvey Oswald shot and killed the president. I remember being on the playground and seeing the teachers, running to one another and talking and having hurriedly call all the students together and going inside. And my teacher was crying, my fourth grade teacher. And she said, class, please be quiet. They're getting ready to make an announcement. And so over the PA system and our little class started crackling. And the principal said, we're now going to go to CBS News. And as they went to CBS News, we heard a man named Walter Cronkite say, and yes, We've just received word that President John F. Kennedy has been pronounced dead at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas. They sent us home. I remember going home and seeing my mama crying. Church, I, I remember where we went that night. My dad sold furniture and we delivered some furniture and went out to eat that night. And I remember everybody just walking as if they're in a, uh, some type of nightmare. I remember Wake Forest had a football game that night against NC State. And they decided to play the game, and they were ridiculed for playing a football game the night the president had been killed. And our country forever changed in many ways. I remember being in a staff meeting on September the 11th, 2001, before iPhones. We were just sitting there having a meeting, and our headmaster came in late from PCA, and he, he, he said, uh, something's happening in Washington, or excuse me, in New York. We, we should turn on the TV, and we turned on the TV in time to see one of the towers smoking. And somebody said, it seems like a, a private plane was going off course and flew into one of the twin towers. And as we sat there thinking, what is going on? We saw a large commercial jet fly into the other tower. And they they went back to the newscaster, the newscaster was speechless. And we sat there thinking, what is going on? And we sat there, and we watched both towers come down. And I said, guys, we're going home. And we, I went home and sat with my wife, and her, her dad was here, and we watched that. And we had a special meeting, prayer meeting that night at church, and the church was packed as people just pled with God to have mercy on our land. I remember George Bush standing up on that rubble the next Sunday and saying, we hear your voice, and they will hear our voice. And our country forever changed. Pivotal points in history. And there are other pivotal points that we can remember. Personal points. But as you read this text, let me tell you, the pivotal point of all history is the inbreaking of the kingdom and the coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, you know, there were prophets, 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 prophets. John the Baptist is the final prophet. Now his kingdom come. That's why, growing up, Every, every historical date had a B.C. or an A.D. behind it. Not so much anymore. Before the coming of Christ, after the death of Christ. The pivotal point of history. And, and, and that's what this, this text is saying. The pivotal point of history. And, and as, as you read this text, he gives us two truths. And I, Two truths to, to cause us to have fortitude in the way, along the way. Two, two truths. The, the first is this. It, it comes from verse 12. And verse 12 is, is a very difficult verse to, to interpret, but I'm going to give it just a, a quick shot. You can interpret, I think, two major ways, but I'm going to go with the fact that I think verse 12 is talking about there will be hardships. Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violent or wicked men take it by force. In other words, there's going to be wicked men who will try to seize the kingdom and and to keep the kingdom from going forward. And there's going to be opposition to the kingdom. And that's very much part and parcel of this whole uh, issue that we've been going through in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 10, he talks about... Uh, the the persecutions or the, the opposition you will face. And he's just said this regarding the universal discipleship. He says, behold, verse 16 of chapter 10, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them to the Gentiles. And he says this, the brother will deliver brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And I'll give you utterance when you're called before the law courts. And he says, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher and a servant is not above his master. It is enough for you to be like your teacher and and the servant to be like his master. So he says there's going to be, I think, violence. Now, now, years ago, a few years ago, there was a woman who went to church here and she was an exchange student and she was from Europe. And I remember talking to her one day and she said, I've got a question to ask you. I said, sure. She said, wherever I go, people speak to me. People are very friendly in Charleston. She said, they speak to me and they say, how are you doing? And she says, I start telling them and they walk away. I said, well, you got to realize, when we ask each other, how are you doing, we really don't mean it. I mean, we're, we're just, that's just a nice way of saying good morning. I mean, it's not that they're nice. It's just that that's just kind of Southernese for how you doing, hope you have a good day, or whatever. I said, oh. But sometimes people say, how are you doing? I've got two responses. I'll tell you both. One is, if they really ask me, I will often say, battles and blessings. And I say it but by God's grace, more blessings than battles. And, and but, but the truth is, as you, as you think about life, life is filled with battles and blessings. I've got a little scale in the worship guide. And, and on one, one side of the scale, has got Deuteronomy 30, which is in, I was writing of Moses. And he says in verses 19 and 20, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you. Today I set before you life and death. And then later in the passage, he says this, Obey the voice of the Lord and hold fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. He's your life. He's your length of days. Hold fast to the Lord. And then Psalm 4 is one of my favorite psalms. The psalmist says that there are many around us who are, who, who are calling out, really in derision, who will show us any good? And the psalmist prays, O oh Lord, lift Up the light of your face upon us. Then he says, This you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And I just ask you, How is your joy? How's your joy? You've put more joy in my heart than when their grain and new wine abound. Or Malachi, again, the last book of the Old Testament. I was reading earlier, Malachi says this. It says, but chapter 4, but for few who fear my name. Verse 2. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And, and in other words, he says... When the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in His wings, you'll, you'll be released. You have forgiveness of sin, be released from the stall, and you go out like calves who have been released to run in the big field. And, and you'll tread under your feet those things that, that separate you from the living God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I, I read this and I said, how's your joy? How's your joy? Then I get to the other side of the scale and... The battles. 2 Corinthians 6.10 Sorrowing, yet always rejoicing. What a statement. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Or Romans 8. And we, not only the, the, the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I'm, yes, are you groaning? Are you groaning, saying, Lord, as my body hurts or as sin intrudes in my life or as I have these thoughts and these relationships that are broken, Lord, I'm groaning. God, have mercy. So you see, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It's a mixed bag, church. You're going through a hard time in your family. Are you groaning? I think you should groan. 2 Corinthians five two for in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Do you see battles and blessings, church? I mean that. Uh, uh, that's, uh, to me that, that's just a part of, of being a person, a fortitude. Another time people say, "How are you doing?" And if they really are asking me, this is what I. It's kind of my standard answer. I said, "Well, you know, as far as I know, I'm fairly healthy. I have a wife who loves me most of the time." I love what I do. I enjoy the people I work with. My sins are forgiven, and if I die, I go to heaven. It does get much better than that. Battles and blessings. So, so let me tell you, I, I love my family. I really love my family. And yet, I'll tell you, I've been married almost 39 years to a sinner and she's really married to a sinner. I mean, a real flesh and blood sinner. And I love my kids. I have wonderful children. They're sinners. They're married sinners. I was very hopeful that the grandkids wouldn't get there. But unfortunately, I think they're getting there. They are there. For example, I've got a 23-year-old granddaughter on the West Coast. She isn't saying much, but she's learned, she's mastered one word. No. She'll point her finger. I say, no. Well, she does it all the time. And I'm thinking, put on your seat belts. This is going to be a bumpy ride. I've got a 21-month-old grandson who lives right over four or five miles over here. Sweet child. He likes to help his grandmother water her plants. And so he's... He's been happy to watch her, and then now he's gradu- he graduated to where he would hold the hose and she would guide where he wants to water the flowers. But about two weeks ago, he decided he wanted to hold the hose all by himself. And so, even though he waters himself and he waters things in order to be watered, if you try to take it from him, he'll start moaning and groaning and crying. And he's, what he's saying, I'm going to do it my way, sin. It's here. So that, 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 that's life. It's battles and blessings. And I, Are we sorrowful yet? Always rejoicing. Let me say this. Thank, thank our music team, our worship team, for our, our, our songs. I go both places. Be very careful what you sing because what you sing, you're going to remember. This sermon, you'll remember parts of it maybe in the next three days. Maybe. But, but, but what you sing, gets in your brain. So be careful what you sing. Uh, for example, th- there's a song. Some of us who grew up in, in a church context grew up singing the, a song that goes like this. And it's horrible theology. But we sang it. There's a term about 20 years ago called, or 30 years ago, happy, clappy Christians. We just are happy, and we, you know, we clap, and we're, you know, we bebop around, and you know, we've got the head bobble thing going on. This is, Listen. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus, I love him more and more. Jesus Jesus says and keeps me, and he's the one I'm living for. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. What a bunch of balderdash. What a bunch of pooey. I mean, come on. I'm, I'm thinking about it, and I'm reading one of the great Puritans this week, and he says, I pray to the Lord, forgive me for being inconsistent in my affections. Forgive me, Lord, for being up and down and not steadfast. Please give me your Holy Spirit and power that I may be more consistent. I said, Amen. Amen. That's me. That's me. If you don't love Jesus more and more every day, you're up and you're down and you're in and you're out. That is life. Battles and blessings. Conversely, we in here, we sang a hymn just today, that was written in 1982. The sidebar, Dean gave the sidebar, is called, O God, Beyond All Praise. And listen to these words. This is theologically sound. See, then then hear, O gracious Savior, accept the love we bring that we who know your favor may serve you as our king. And whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, will triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still to marvel at your beauty and glory in your ways and make a joyful duty our sacrifice of praise. That is good stuff. Battles and blessings. Joys and sorrows. So I'm thinking about this, and I'm reading this past couple of weeks about the ongoing reports from the church in China. Just, just as an aside, Maybe the fastest-growing church in the world today is the church in Iran. <laughs> Iran, you won't you hear that. There was there were less than 500 Christians in 1979 when the Shah was kicked out and Ayatollah Khomeini came in, and today there are, as far as of growth, there are thousands and thousands coming to faith in Jesus. It's amazing. The church in China experienced a great flourishing in the last 50 years, especially with the freedom of religion under a man named Deng Xiaoping and what he did. But in the last few years, the new leader, Mr. Xi, has come in. He's going to put in the male male cult of worship again. He wants to be the guy. So they are cracking down on all religions, especially the Christian faith. I haven't heard about people being put to death, but they're putting people in prison. They're seizing properties. They're closing churches. We have a dear couple in our church who were cross-cultural workers in China for 20 years. They left, and they were not allowed to come back to even get their stuff. So if you come back, you'll be arrested. There's a pastor, one of the leaders of the church, a pastor named Wang Yi, who was trained as an attorney, became a believer, and was elevated to be a pastor. And he, he made this comment recently. That's his picture in the background. It says that the calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world but to testify about another world. It's amazing. I've got a statement, a letter he wrote to the the authorities as they put him in prison. I'm just going to read two or three paragraphs. This is good stuff. This is good stuff. He said, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. As the Lord's servant John Calvin said, Wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people. The goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward him. For this reason, I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as though submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. At the same time, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a Greatly wicked, unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws and disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. For the mission of the church is only to be the church and not to become part of the secular institution. From a negative perspective, the church must separate itself from the world and keep itself from being institutionalized by the world. From a positive perspective, all acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. The Bible teaches us that in all matters relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not men. For this reason, spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both ways to testify to another eternal world and to another glorious King. I tell you, this is good. Last paragraph Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant. And I am in prison because of this. I resist in meekness those who resist God. And I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. The The Lord's servant, Pastor Wang Yi. Wow. So, the next time somebody tells you people are persecuted because they have a lack of faith... Or people go through hard times because of a lack of faith. Just understand they're so off the wall. They're not even the same zip code. Jesus said difficult times will come. But then he said this. Secondly, he says the thing that really builds fortitude is verse 11. And it's easy to read this and you kind of go, what does that mean to let it go by? Don't don't, don't read it and go, what does that mean to let it go by? I want you to hear this. Verse 11 says this. This is amazing to me. This is one You read this and you go, does this really say what I think it says? He says this. I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Greater than John the Baptist? What does this mean? He's talking about position and the ability to understand he says, John the Baptist is the last prophet, the forerunner, the Elijah who is to come. He understood. He saw the coming Lamb of God. He introduced me. He's known me really from his mother's womb. And there's never risen on one greater as far as privilege and ability to see and understand than John the Baptist. But I tell you that the one who is least in the kingdom of God or heaven is greater than John the Baptist. What in the world does that mean? It it means that if you live on this side of the inbreaking of the kingdom, on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, on this side of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, on this side of the closing of the canon and the giving of the Bible, we have an incredibly more beautiful and diligent position than even John the Baptist. It's an amazing statement. Are you rejoicing in that heritage? I remember years ago, I was, I was, in fact, I was overseas. I was in a missionary prayer group, and I was with a missionary, and he said this, and, and I, I think he's wrong. We're talking about where we'd like to be in history. He said, if I had one day to live, I would love to have been a Jew on the day of Yom Kippur when the Lamb of God was given as a sin offering for the whole nation. That would have been incredible. I remember thinking, I'm not sure i was a young guy. Now I say, I, no, that would have been a really cool experience. Don't misunderstand me. But I would 1,000 times rather be on this side of the fulfillment of the promises of the Lamb of Yom Kippur, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, than to be back there. I mean, the, the, the glory of what we have now compared to the Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers saw it dimly. They saw it through, a, 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 through shades. They saw it through, they couldn't quite put it together. They had no understanding of the full forgiveness of sin. That there's no concept of boldly coming into the presence of the triune God by the blood of the Lamb. They were hopeful and expectant and looking forward. But we are much more blessed. Are you rejoicing in the greatness of Christ? I think of the statement Jesus makes in Matthew 13 when he says, Blessed are your eyes and what they see and your ears and what they hear. Because I tell you, many righteous men long to see what you see but didn't see it. And hear what you hear but did not hear it. Isaiah longed to see. Elijah, David, they all longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it, and to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. And when we get that, then our our prayer is the the cry of the Hilbert Catechism mentioned last week. What do we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done? And the answer is, we, we, we cry out, oh, may we submit more and more to your word and your spirit May you protect and increase your church and destroy the devices of the devil. But listen, church, more and more and more and more submit to you. May that be our prayer, Lord. May we more and more submit to you, O Puritan John Owen. My favorite Puritan died in 1688, Volume Two in his his work says this. He says, "This communion and fellowship with God, is not clearly." held out in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. The thing itself is found there, but the clear light of it and the boldness of it is discovered only in the gospel of grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit administered to us. Says so this manifestation of grace and pardon and mercy can only be seen fully in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And earlier he says this, unacquaintedness with our mercies and privileges is our sin as well as our trouble. This causes us to go heavily when we might rejoice and to be weak when we might be strong in the Lord. And I'm just, are you rejoicing in your privileges, child of God? in the full forgiveness of sin, in, in the outpoured Holy Spirit, in the glory of the cross and sin's forgiven, in bold access into the throne room of God. See, what, what, what in this passage, what keeps you going strong? Number one is to understand, there will be times when wicked men seem to seize the upper day. When it's hard. But even in the midst of that, the living God is at work in your life. But but the second way that keeps you strong is this. Realize that you, if you've been a Christian one week or 30 years, 40 years, that, that you have a greater position of privilege and glory and rejoicing than even John the Baptist had, who had the privilege of pointing to Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see it. He saw it dimly be strong. Fight the good fight of faith. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the ability to, to really understand the Bible, that you've given us the Word of God. Lord, I pray in a time when so much around us is, is just the up is down and in is out and I think of the psalmist who says that people are saying to me, flee to the mountains. He says, but God is still on his throne. So I pray, Lord, during these days that you give us a fortitude, a a rock-solid oak type of spirit like John the Baptist, that we would rejoice in your goodness and glory in your mercies, and we would show true fortitude, and that you would use us to impact the coming generations, to teach them, to instruct them. Uh, I pray you show us the, the, the wonder of our position that those of us who are, who are young believers are in a, a stronger position and a greater position than even John the Baptist. It's amazing. So help us endure, help us to go forward, help us to trust you and, and to be people of resolve in Jesus' name. Amen.